We're here again on a difficult Sunday. And uh, it's, it's going to be another family day when maybe we deal with some family issues and worship and pray together as a family. And if you are a visitor here this morning, I, I apologize. It's kind of a family day, but maybe, maybe it'll intrigue you to watch how this family deals uh, with, with its issues. And, uh, and, and, and I believe that regardless, if you've been here a hundred times before or this is your first Sunday, that God's Word still speaks no matter where we are. And uh, that's what we want to do this morning is to look into God's Word. Uh, as I was preparing for this morning... Um, I kept coming back to Psalm 137, and if you've read ahead, if you've looked, you've already scratched your heads and wondered, what? Herb, really? Is that the passage? Well, I, last time I was here, I, I, I spoke on Psalm 136, and 135 and 136 and 137 are actually a trilogy. They, they belong together, and this seems to be where the Holy Spirit was tugging me this week, and so... You can blame him. Psalm 137. Let me, let me read it for you. <clears throat> By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs from Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And then a very odd and difficult passage, uh, a paragraph that follows, which I promise you, it does have some spiritual redeeming factors to it, and, and, and we'll touch on it, but, but I think those first verses are enough for us this morning. I promise you, we, we, will, we will bring some conclusion to those difficult verses. But as I read these first parts, by the rivers of Babylon... Babylon? What are they doing in Babylon? These are God's people. These are the Hebrews, the children of God. They belong in Israel, but here they are in Babylon. What on earth are they doing in Babylon? And you'll forgive me as one who loves history. Let let me give just a, 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 a little background. Israel, well, it's no surprise to you that they, um, they had walked away from God again. And God had brought, uh, brought them into captivity. In fact, this captivity is the same one that Daniel would have been part of, a character that maybe we're more familiar with. In 586 B.C., the Babylons had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and many of its citizens were carried away uh, to, to Babylon. Now, why on earth would God have allowed that? Why would he have allowed his people to be captured 
and taken away. Well, you see, after David, after King David established this kingdom, uh, David, the king that they all loved, his, his son Samuel became king, expanded the borders, did amazing things, but brought all sorts of pagan wives into the kingdom. And they each brought uh, their pagan religions, and a whole bunch of that began to get mixed in with worship of the one true God. And after Solomon's death, there was a terrible civil war. And uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, Rehoboam was one of Solomon's sons, uh, were the two warring kings. And Jeroboam ended up ruling in the north in Israel, and and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, ruled in in the south in, in Judah. Now, Jeroboam, in order to keep his people from wanting to go down south where the temple was, he had a great idea. He built two, are you ready for it? You've heard this before, two golden calves and set them up in some pagan high places and said to his people, hey, look, here, you can come. And these are in honor of God. You can come and worship God. And, and he, he created a priestly clan that weren't the Levites and they mixed in together all of this pagan worship. And God chastised them. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in and took away the northern, the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom ended up heading the same direction. They walked away from God, and eventually in 586 B.C. is where we're at now in this psalm. The Babylonians had come in, destroyed the city and the temple, and carried lots of, lots of the prime young leaders, including Daniel, away. So what do we take from all of that? I mean, what's the, that's kind of depressing. What's the takeaway on that? Well, the takeaway, and I think the warning, is that God doesn't tolerate false worship. Even if that worship is put alongside him, he will not tolerate false worship. And he will do whatever it takes to put their focus, to put our focus back on him. Destroying his his people and their, their country and having them hauled away into captivity, that sounds awfully harsh. I mean, really, is that necessary? But God will do anything needed. And you know what? As a parent, so will you. You've done the same thing. That kid's about to run into the street, and you don't negotiate. You grab and yank back. I have a two-year-old granddaughter that has learned to love her big wheel and goes down the hill, the driveway hill, right out into the road. And many, many times I've watched her dad discipline, grab her by the time she's about to go into the street and yank her back. Seems awfully harsh, but necessary. You might spank a child to get them to associate their action with something bad or to cement a memory. You discipline your children, and God was disciplining the Hebrews 
with an eye towards perfecting their faith. Hmm. God won't tolerate lip service worship from us either. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. Can you hear the pain and the agony in their voices? And with all that's gone on here in our family, perhaps you're feeling that same pain or some agony. And that's right. We sat down, we wept. What made it even more painful for the Hebrews there is that uh, their captors tormented them. Hey, those songs you guys are so good at. Those songs of Zion, sing those for us again. Come on, come on. And they tormented them with them. Sing them again for us. Sing us one of those songs. But they couldn't. All right, I might be, I might be way off base here, okay? But this, this is Herb. This is not Scripture, okay? I wonder. Uh, I wonder if in our community there might be those watching and looking and they might be thinking, if not actually saying, boy, those people at that church, they really aren't all they claim to be, are they? Seems to me they're not living up to what they say. And that's hard. That hurts. Correction from a friend is healing. Torment from an enemy just wounds. Although it might land true sometimes. But they couldn't sing. They hung their harps in the willows. They were silent. I kind of like that the NIV says they hung their harps in the poplars. In the, in, in the Hebrew, it's the same word. Poplars and willows is the same word. And I know that willows have a whole lot better poetic visualization to them with their drooping branches and the willows. But I kind of like that it says poplars. Because here in central Minnesota, northern Minnesota, where I spend my time, we got a whole lot more popples. And I can relate to that. But man, there's some days I just want to hang up my harp in these trees and say, yeah, I'm done. I can't sing now, God. I can't praise now. I want to hang up my harp. Poplars. More familiar and accessible to me. We sat down by the rivers of Babylon and we wept when we remembered Zion. We don't understand how powerful a word that is, Zion. For the exiled Jew, it was that memory of, oh, the city of Zion. That's Jerusalem. It's that ancient city that David captured. David, that, that uh, powerful king that they all loved. Uh, that he set up his city in, in Jerusalem. The oldest part of the city, as time went on, Jerusalem uh, was known as Zion, and Jerusalem itself became synonymous with that. I'm not sure how to capture <clears throat> the ethos of that, unless maybe you substitute the word Zion 
for home. You ever been away from home and missed it so much? Or for some of us that are a bit older now, home was a long time ago. And you long for it. Home. The name Zion became shorthand too for the temple and made it all the worse because home they couldn't go back to. It had been destroyed. It doesn't exist anymore. I want to go home, but you know what? The Bloomquist family farm isn't there anymore. It's been sold a long time ago. Can't go home. And I miss it. I miss it. Imagine how they were feeling as they're thinking back to home and the temple. And that only added to the pain that it wasn't there anymore. And it also reminded to them how they had neglected proper worship and worship of God. Hmm. Have you ever been in that situation? Uh, the hurt of missing a place or a person so much, but remembering how you took that place or person or God for granted. In times in the New Testament, <clears throat> or in time in the New Testament, uh, Zion, well, became associated with something else again. In in 1 Peter 2.6, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him, the cornerstone, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Jesus is the center of that home. Jesus is the important cornerstone of Zion, of home. For some of us, home, like I said, goes way back. Even those of us that have been here for a long time. Oh, I remember home. I remember when it was just the little chapel. Remember that? We were a small family then. But I miss it. Oh, and then we had such tremendous and wonderful growth afterwards. That was, I miss it. But that's not home. Because still later in Scripture... Zion is equated with heaven. Heaven is my home. Heaven is a future thing, not a look back thing. I'm looking forward to going home. And sometimes in remembering and pondering that my future home is in heaven is both comforting and also brings me sorrow because I often forget. No, Herb, you ain't staying here. This isn't home. Home is yet to come. I want to read you a fairly large portion of Scripture that talks about this, that talks about home, Zion is yet to come. In Hebrews chapter 12, I want to read you the whole chapter. That's ridiculous. But hang with me. Listen, listen well. Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so eagerly entangles. 
And let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And you've forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And then he quotes the Old Testament. My son, do not make light the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as a son. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone is disciplined, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more we should submit to the father of our spirits and live. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees and make level the paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. That's important, like Esau. In the verses that we'll look at later on, it's Esau's descendants that did some terrible things to their cousins. For who for a single meal sold his inheritance right as an oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Now listen to this. You have come to a mountain. He's talking about Mount Sinai, where the law of God had been given. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. To the city of the living God, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they had refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, 
Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate that indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I wish our passage ended there. I, 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 I wish we could just dwell on those first words and didn't have the rest of these difficult words, but they are in Scripture and we have to deal with them first, although I don't want to dwell on them today. My first reaction as I read those words is, how on earth could that be in Scripture? Is God really in favor of that sort of brutality? against infants? I want to first note that that infant brutality was part of the ancient world warfare. Actually, sadly to say, it continues. A number of years ago, I was in Liberia shortly after their 15-year civil war, and the stories that we heard of the evilness and the brutality against pregnant women and infants. Wow. It was brutal. So it does still continue. But more importantly, look at verse 8. Verse 8 is the difference. Verse 8 is a prophecy. Verse 8 is about what's going to come in the future towards Babylon, that city that would never kneel to God. It's not a statement of revenge that the Israelites were looking for. Oh, I wish we could. No, it's not that at all. They're remembering things that had happened to them, and they're warning Babylon, you have a difficult future because you won't bow your knee the living God. Would love to unpack that prophecy a bit more. That's not our task for today. But don't read it as a revenge that the Israelites were looking for. It's a prophecy, a warning to Babylon. In the midst of discipling or disciplining, very much the same, in the midst of disciplining Israel, there's this prophetic warning to Babylon. But what do we do with this emotive song written expressing uh, Israel's heart and loss? Well, we can relate to it, maybe. Our hearts might be heavy and, heavy and weary, and we might not feel ready to sing right now. But let's redeem this heaviness with self-evaluation. If there's lessons to be learned, let's learn them. (laughs) Let's learn them quickly so we can move on. A number of years ago, as we were doing uh, camps in China, and as that whole ministry was opening up, I remember I had a team of guys in the airport ready to go. And they got stuck in the Minneapolis airport for two days. 
we never figured out what was wrong. Someone's tickets were wrong. Visas or passports weren't correct or somehow couldn't get through security, didn't have the right things, whatever it was. And it was two days of frustration. And I remember uh, one of the mornings when the leader called me and said, Herb, what is going on? What's the deal here? God's, you know, we're trying to follow God and we're doing this stuff in China that's just amazing. And I remember pausing and, and saying, Troy, I wonder what God is trying to teach you guys. And I wonder how long it'll take you to learn it. And maybe the sooner you learn it, the sooner we'll be able to get on with the work. We prayed over the phone. And it wasn't, it wasn't more than 20 minutes. He called back. He said, Herb, we learned our lesson. The flight's about to leave. We're all running right now. I said, wait, quick, what was the lesson? He said, the lesson we learned is that we are not in control. That God is. We had all sorts of plans. They've been blown out of the water now. We're two days late. We'll scramble and make all sorts of things work. But what we learned and what we agreed as a group uh, praying together is that we're not in control. God is. And then God opened the flights. Let's redeem this time with self-reflection and self-evaluation and, and asking God, pleading with God to teach us what we need to learn. And in the midst of that, let's, gain, let, let's turn our gaze to the future Zion, where our gaze needs to be anyways. Let's turn it towards heaven. That's where we're spending eternity. This is all just preparation. May have to endure some pain now, and we will endure it, but our eyes are on the cornerstone, Jesus, in our heavenly Zion. Let's not lose our focus on what's going on now. Let's focus on what's to come. Let's look to Zion City of God, where our Redeemer, Jesus, is the focus. Let me pray for us. Father, we do not like discipline. We do not like when things go on that we don't have control over. But we pray, Father, that you would be a good father to us and teach us in the midst of hardship. Father, in the midst of that hardship, remind us to, yes, indeed, sing and turn our joy and praise towards the focus where it ought to be on you. Father, remind us that you love us that you are working to perfect our faith and help us to learn it quickly. In your name, amen.